When I was just eight years old, I had to testify in court against my paternal grandfather for sexual assault. I remember walking through the courtroom to the witness box and seeing my grandpa's cowboy hat on the table where he sat with his two high-powered attorneys. There was the clock on the wall that I stared at while I answered questions that no eight-year-old should ever have to answer. I still recall the disappointing outcome of him being found not guilty. My name is Kelly Wallace. I am a writer and sexual assault survivor. I've undergone decades of therapy to overcome what I experienced, and writing is a part of my healing process. In this podcast, we will talk with other writers who have also overcome sexual violence. Their stories are often neglected, but to me, they are an inspiration, and I'm excited to be able to share them with you. Welcome to Recognize Our Power. The topics we are discussing are sensitive and do come with a trigger warning. Please take care of yourself. If you are in need of resources, please visit our website, www.recognizeourpower.com, and click on the resources page. It's not necessarily easy, right? I, I suffered a lot of knockbacks like any writer would be, like you'd get a lot of rejections, but then that's even more devastating when it's about your own trauma, which you've just shared. Welcome to the Recognize Our Power podcast, a podcast for readers, writers, sexual assault survivors, and beyond. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace. Thank you for listening and subscribing. I'm so excited to dive in and introduce you to a wide variety of writers who are themselves survivors of sexual violence. I'm so grateful to be speaking to our guest today, Winnie M. Lee. She is an author, activist, who has worked in the creative industries over three continents. Taiwanese-American and raised in New Jersey, Winnie studied folklore and mythology at Harvard, and later Irish literature as a George Mitchell scholar. Her debut novel, Dark Chapter, a fictional retelling of her real-life stranger rape in Belfast, is written from both victim and perpetrator perspectives. Her second novel, Complicit, came out in summer 2022. Welcome, Winnie. Hi. Thank you, Kelly. Great to be on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. So um, for our listeners that may not be familiar with you, can you share for us a little bit about your background, your growing up years, how you came to writing? Sure. I essentially grew up in uh, suburban New Jersey, so about kind of half hour drive outside of Manhattan um, in a pretty unspectacular, you know, American (laughs) suburb. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I was always aware of the fact that I didn't really fit in, partly just because of my race. I was, you know, my parents are Taiwanese American, so I'm effectively, you know, look and sound Chinese. Yeah. And it was a pretty white community at the time. So I never really had a kind of strong sense of belonging there. Mm. And I always was really interested in traveling, partly because of that. So I just kind of would grow up reading kind of fairy tales or, re- you know, set in Europe and, you know, just wanted to go on these long journeys of adventures um, one day myself. <laughs> yeah. 
So that is kind of what I was always really interested in. And then eventually I was, was really interested in folk tales and fairy tales. So I ended up mm-hmm. studying that when I went to college. And I studied specifically kind of Scottish and Irish or, you know, Celtic mythology, which is a bit weird for my, my parents were like, what? <laughs> You know, Taiwanese American, why do you care about, you know, these Irish folktales? But yeah, so I think that's what kind of drew me to eventually live in Europe. So, and I still live in Europe now, but I mean, I moved to Ireland just after I graduated from university as as an undergraduate. So I got a master's there. I got a fellowship to study my master's in Ireland, um, which was kind of a dream come true for me at the time. Then I got there and I was like, oh, it just rains all the time in Ireland and I stick out even more. (laughs) Ireland is not a diverse place. So yeah, but I think for me, you know, so much of my life has been about, you know, those kind of having those early roots of not quite feeling like I belonged, but then always wanting Mm. to kind of seek out adventure or go to different places and to kind of explore new countries. And I guess, you know, now in my 40s, I probably still am like that in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely. So in your first book, The Dark Chapter, you write about how you were traveling in in Belfast. And can you share for our readers a little bit about your experience and how that book kind of came to be? Yeah, I mean, I could spend forever talking about that. I mean, (laughs) my experience was kind of the stereotypical stranger rape uh, Mm -hmm. that you hear of in the news, right? And and it was Mm -hmm. all over the news at the time in Northern Ireland. So I I was 29 years old at the time. And so by that point, I was living in London, working in film as a you know producer for an independent film production company so you know i was leading what was a pretty cool life i wasn't earning a lot of money but it was like getting to travel i was getting to make movies and so that was i thought that was going to be kind of what the rest of my life was going to be like right yeah but obviously life has other (laughs) stuff you know planned for you sometimes so i um you know had been invited to essentially kind of like a business trip to Belfast. And every time I'm in a new country or if I'm in a new city, I'll try to see if I can squeeze in a hike somewhere, right? Mm. So towards the end of that business trip, I was like, oh, I want to, there's this hike outside of Belfast that I want to go on. And it was in my Lonely Planet guidebook. And I just remember like booking my flight a day or so later so I could set aside a day to do this, uh, to do this hike. Yeah. And, and that's kind of how it started. It was kind of as innocuous as that. Like I am, you know, pretty seasoned as a traveler on my own, but and yeah. that by that point I was, I'd done a lot of kind of even more rugged kind of outdoors hiking on my own. <laughs> you know, I did the West Highland Way, a whole bunch of things like that. But so I didn't really think much of just kind of going on this hike, which started on the outskirts of a city and, you know, just went for like 10, 11 miles into the hills. So I, I mean, I still remember very clearly, you know, like, packing my date pack and I had like an apple and bottles of water and a a, a change of clothes if I needed it and my Lonely Planet guidebook and then taking a series of buses to this to the outskirts of the city and starting this walk in what was essentially like a city park but I mean what you have to think about you know cities in Europe and possibly other parts of the world like you don't have a huge amount of suburbia you kind of just get cities and then like they sort of end and suddenly it's countryside right so this was kind of Mm. like that where it was like it seemed like a city park but actually you just had countryside right outside it and I guess little to my knowledge you know there had been somebody who saw me in the park and followed me and it wasn't like they just jumped out of the bushes and attacked me right there this person approached me and they had a conversation and he was a 15-year-old boy at the time, right? Mm-hmm. So I just thought, 
I was 29 years old, right? As a, and I was quite traveled as a woman. So I was like, okay, who was this kid who's talking to me, right? Yeah. So we just had a really weird conversation. I was like, okay, there's this kind of strange kid who's having this conversation with me. It's a little bit bizarre, but I did that thing where it's like, okay, humoring you in the conversation. And now I need to kind of go on my way. And then he kept following me. So, mm. you know, we had another weird interaction where he just like showed up and started talking to me again. Um, this is all in my book, by the way, in Dark yes. Chapter. And then he started following me and continued following me. And then once we got to a much more remote area of the park, he, he you know, stumbled upon me, quote, unquote, a third time. And that's when he became quite violent. So mm-hmm. I had this sense of dread as I was walking in terms of like, oh, here's a really weird kid. But like, you know, I kind of shrugged it off. You don't want to think that these things can happen to you. And I was like, well, I'm used to traveling on my own. I'm used to hiking. I'm not going to let this kid scare me off. Yeah. But yeah, I mean at the end of the day he was a very violent person right and i wasn't prepared for that kind of violence so yeah i mean i can go into detail more but that's in the book and i don't kind of feel like i want to necessarily talk about it on the podcast but it was this kind of quite rude awakening as to you know the amount of violence that does exist there in the world so yeah i was um violently assaulted and raped by this 15 year old boy I think the assaults, I mean, it felt like it lasted forever. I don't know what it was actually like, but it probably was Mm -hmm. 20 minutes, 30 minutes Mm -hmm. or something like that. And then he eventually left the scene. And I just remember thinking, like, I don't know, what what the heck just happened, right? Because I'd gone out to go on this hike on my own. It was a beautiful, like, spring afternoon. This thing happened, and then he left. And I was just like, I don't what was that? So I hadn't quite, at that time, by that point, piece together what it was and i think that's something a lot of victims uh encounter you don't want to use the word rape <laughs> you know in um right. in relation to your own life yeah so i basically realized like okay well i can do one of two things like i can keep on walking because i like the woods so i like nature that might calm me down i set out to do this hike so I might as well finish it or i could call a friend for help and I remember thinking, like, okay, I was probably beaten quite badly during that assault, mm. so maybe I need medical attention. So I called a friend, and I had a very, very surreal conversation with her um, because she answered, yeah. and you know, and she's to make a long story short, we had been in Belfast for the same reason. So my friend Mary Lou was like, and she was a bit older than me. I mean, she was probably about twenty years older than me, mm. and she's like, well, how's it going? I'm like, yeah, I, I'm okay. And we had this, you know, kind of bizarre exchange of chit chat, and then she's like. No, I asked her, like, hey, Mary Lou, what's up? And she's like, oh, yeah, no, I'm just doing this, you know, following up on these events that we just staged. And and she's like, how are you? And I'm like, I, um, yeah, I'm not doing so well. I think I've just been raped. And that was the first time I used the word, right? Yeah. Because I think for me, that's, I was thinking, like, survival mode, like, what is the fastest way I can convey what just happened to me? I'm like, I think the word is raped. So I used that word and then she, she was great. I mean, she called the police. She said, you know, stay right where we are, where you are. I'm going to call the police. I'm going to come and meet you myself. And I often think how incredibly different my experience would have been um, if she'd had a different kind of reaction. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And can you talk about your decision to fictionalize your story versus go the nonfiction route? Sure. Like, I have always wanted to be a writer. So, you know, if you asked me at the age of six what I wanted to be, I would have said I want to write novels, right? So most of my childhood, you know, I was writing stories. And and not stories I would ever want anyone to read these days. But (laughs) in my mind, I just kind of, I loved kind of the fictional side of dreaming up imaginary worlds, creating characters. So by the time that rape happened to me, I was 29. So I was working in a film, which is a different form of storytelling. 
I was working on a different novel at the time, actually, mm. a much kind of fluffier, lighter one, I suppose, <laughs> um, which will never see the light of day now. Yeah. <laughs> but so uh, pursuing writing a novel was something I was already kind of engaged in at the time. Right. And then this happened to me. So then I was like, oh, my God. Right. I was just I was yeah. in shock, as most people would be. Right, right. And I just remember thinking somewhere down the line, I want to turn this into a book, but I want it to be a book where you look at the lives of both the victim and the perpetrator because he had, you know, he led such a different life for me. I mean, I was, you know, quite privileged because of my education. I was working in film, you know, in the middle of London. And the more I learned about him, you know, he was 15 years old. He hadn't, he was illiterate. He had come from a broken family and he was an Irish traveler, which is a community in in Ireland that's quite maligned. So he had a lot of kind of, I suppose, loss at such a young early age that Mm -hmm. I didn't have. And I was just aware of the fact that I had many opportunities that were never going to be given to him. So that kind of very big difference in our lives struck me. And I wanted to, at the same time, try to make sense of what had happened in his life that had led him to committing the act of violence against me. So I realized I could only really do that through fiction. So I'm like, okay, well, could I write a book where you look at the lives of both the victim and the perpetrators and you follow them up to the moment of violence? And and obviously you see the assault from kind of both points of view. And then you follow their lives afterwards to see how their lives were affected by this one act of violence. So that was something I, I knew I had to do that in fiction because as much, as much as I wanted to do, you know, if I wanted to do nonfiction, I have to do all this research into him. The police were like, you know, he's got his own right to privacy. So there's only so much I would have been able to dig up about mm. him. And I would have been constrained by the need to tell right. the truth, right? Which is something right. that, you know, a lot of victims are constrained by in a lot of ways. Yeah. And actually, I think there was something quite creative and liberating about being able to use my own imagination and my own kind of skill as a writer to try to bring this character to life. And yet yes. also at the same time, feel like I had some kind of mastery over the situation because, you know, yeah. it's a novel that I was writing. What was that experience of fictionalizing your rapist like for you? I mean, I know you talked about like the creative license, but just I, I think I would really struggle with that as, as a writer. What was your um, experience with that? I think I probably would not have been able to write it if he was yeah. more similar to my own background right. and if he was older, frankly, right? I think for me, the really interesting and obviously quite sad point was the fact that he was so young. So yeah. it was very much a sense of like, here's a person who's half my age, who's who's mm-hmm. committed this act of violence, which has obviously, you know, fundamentally changed the course of my life. But, yeah. you know, he... <laughs> what is it like to be that young and that capable of that form of violence, right? right? Yeah. So a lot of it was about trying to make him, as much as we don't want to, making him a sympathetic character. Yeah. And trying to really understand, you know, what had, what had he, how had he suffered, right? How, how it had mm-hmm. different traumas in his life. And this obviously isn't the case for every perpetrator, but for me, at right. least my, my way of accessing his character was like, how, how did different traumas and different, deprivations in his life lead him to to acting that way so you know as much as he's an unpleasant character because obviously he does these things like (laughs) rape women there are you know for me it was about like can i write ways in which we can kind of see him as more human so for example you know he's very young and he's got an older brother and growing up he he always just wants to be hanging by his older brother's side he wants his older brother's attention he wants his older brother to respect him so he maybe does stuff that is a bit more adult than what he should be doing without quite grasping Mm -hmm. kind of the impact of it and obviously his brother is you know not a great character either in 
terms of yes, doesn't treat yes. women well. Uh, you know, he's he's exposed to porn at a young age through his through his young through his older brother. So, and this all takes place kind of in the absence of parents that are really looking yeah. after them or actually failing to look after them. So, I kind of wanted to look at all those things, which would make you, I guess, try to at least understand that kind of character. You know, and other things were, you know, I mean, we all probably go through our lives, and at some moment we might stop and look at like a sunset or the way the moonlight falls on the field. And so these kinds of moments of, of beauty that we encounter. So I wanted to have small moments like that in his life as well, because even though his life was quite, you know, not particularly enjoyable, there must have been something that brought him joy. So those kinds of things I wanted to write into the novel to kind of allow yeah. us to, to humanize him. Yeah. And, you know, I think as someone who testified against their perpetrator in court at a very young age, I think you really just encapsulated that experience of having to face them. And I was listening to another interview you were you did this morning, and, and you actually did not testify against the perpetrator. But what, I guess my question is, what experiences or research did you draw on to create that environment, the courtroom environment? Yeah, and I think, again, I wrote it probably because I didn't have to do it in real life. I mean, yeah. it was, as you yeah. probably know yourself, like, you know, the yeah. the situation where you have to sit in court and testify about your abuse, you know, in front of the public, you know, in this would have been the case if, if, my, if the trial had gone ahead in front of my yeah. own perpetrator, because he would have been there at the dock to complete mm-hmm. strangers, knowing that the press would also be in the room. You know, that's a terrifying prospect, right? Right. So I... And that was almost worse. It's obviously not really, but like it's almost yeah. worse than the rape itself because the rape for me, you know, was so unexpected. It just happened. So I didn't really have any mm-hmm. moment to anticipate it. Whereas coming up to the court case, it was like months and months of anticipation, months of thinking yeah. like I'm going to have to be in the same room as this guy yeah. and talk intimately about my rape as part of the criminal justice process. Right. So, yeah. So there was just like months of dread for me leading up to the trial. Yeah. I mean, in real life, you know, he was a- arrested about five days after the assault because it was all over the news wave so in in northern ireland so i guess a number of witnesses had come forward because he was sort of a known personality in the area so Mm -hmm. in some ways at least he was arrested quite early but the Mm -hmm. trial wasn't scheduled until i think about 11 months after my assault Mm -hmm. so i had kind of 11 months of dread and then i flew over there and you know was expecting to have to testify and i ended up i was sitting in in the witness room at the time waiting in the courthouse waiting for the jury to be selected and at the very last minute my well the barrister is representing the prosecution came in and they said oh there's been a change and he's agreed to plead guilty if we'll reduce the charges so i just remember thinking like wow that that what what does that mean like it was so yeah. legal right and i was like wait so that means there won't be a trial and like i don't have to testify yeah yeah, and I said, yeah. So if you if you would agree to dr- reduce the charges, I was like, yeah, I guess, sure, right? Because you know, if I didn't have to testify, <laughs> which and you know, he could have done that at any given point prior to the morning of the scheduled trial. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, they often say the defense wants to play that, you know, play that game mm. because they're often aware of the fact that jur- that victims are going to be so intimidated that they won't show up. Right. If they don't show up, then the whole case falls apart. Right. So, mm-hmm. so I guess for me, you know, it. it people assured me they're like well just because you've come over here that that's what made the difference right Mm -hmm. so that was in some ways obviously gratifying I was obviously completely relieved but I also did feel a little bit robbed of the chance to tell my story even though I know subsequently that you know having to testify in court against your perpetrators is a horrifying situation right Um, if you think about the cross-examination so in some ways yeah yeah so I felt 
robbed of the chance to tell my story and also relieved at the same time. And then yeah. when I got to writing the novel, I'm like, well, I can't, I can't have that happen in the novel because, you know, again, as as an audience, we expect that big showdown, we expect that big yeah. dramatic climax. Maybe because we've seen too many Hollywood films, like who knows? So <laughs> it's the irony of like as the victim survivor in that situation, I was very glad that didn't go to trial. But then as somebody, you know, reading a, a fictional work, I'd want there to be a trial. So yeah, I'm like, no, I need to actually capture the tension. I need to capture how incredibly challenging this is emotionally for a victim. Yeah. Um, so I ended up shadowing a barrister. I mean, obviously, this was all taking place in the United Kingdom where I live. Right. So I was shadowing a barrister. I reached out to her and she let me oh. kind of sit and she specialized in, in rape cases. So she let me kind of sit in on a lot of her cases. Wow. It's, yeah, it's a quite different situation to the US. But in the UK, like barristers will specialize in rape or sexual assault. And one oh. week they might. Yeah, one week they might defend a perpetrator and the, or an accused and the next week they might be on the prosecuting side so it's it's a very wow. weird system yeah so they actually know huh. all the different arguments you can make in favor of defense or in favor yeah. of prosecution which actually makes you quite cynical if you think about that yeah. so yeah <laughs> so i kind of I, I so i shouted her i sat in on a number of cases rape cases and i you know just remember being shocked at how traumatizing it, it would have been for the victims and in every mm -hmm. single trial that i sat through uh, the accused was acquitted. You know, so there was never a conviction. So I just thought about like all the waste, like all the resources that goes into those trials taking place, and yet it's that difficult to to achieve a conviction. It because you know it's a jury process in the UK, and uh, you know it just so I just remember thinking like no, like, no, I kind of have to capture this in the novel. I need to dramatize that. Yeah. So that was the research I did, but um, it was certainly eye opening, right? Yeah. And I think if I hadn't written the trial scene, I wouldn't have kind of become so aware of the, the dynamics in, in the criminal justice system. Yes, yes, yes. I think you really just did such a great job of identifying the ways the criminal justice system fails victims. You are listening to Recognize Our Power. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace. And my guest is Winnie M. Lee. We will be right back after this break. Welcome back to Recognize Our Power. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace, and we are talking with Winnie M. Lee. Your book, Complicit, that came out last summer. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that book? Yeah, sure. So that book I wrote, I started writing pretty much right after the, the day after my book tour for Dark Chapter oh, wow. ended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, you know, Dark Chapter I wrote kind of in, I mean, I wouldn't say fever dream because it, you know, it took me two years to write, <laughs> but I wrote and it was like, it came from a very raw, very personal place. Yeah. And finding a publisher deal was also like quite difficult. And it was oh. always, yeah. And I think with any author, I think if you actually ask most published authors, like it's never as easy as it seems like it's going to be. So you get of the course. publishing deal and there's still like, a, it's kind of an uphill battle even once you get the publishing deal. Yes. So, and I kind of went all out in terms of, I guess, promoting that book because I obviously wrote it to have conversations like this to kind of raise awareness. So, you know, mm -hmm. I'm probably not one of those authors that just want to like have a book, you know, write a book, have it published and have it like sit on a shelf and people read yes. it. Like I want to engage with people about it. I'm going to engage with journalists and people like yourselves and, and live audiences. So I sort of went all out and did a lot of events 
in the UK, in the US, and also other countries around Dark Chapter. And then just a few weeks after Dark Chapter came out in the US, the Weinstein allegations went public, right? Yeah. So I just remember thinking like, oh, wow, there's this like, now there's like this very high profile case about rape and sexual assault in the film industry. And I had been working in the film industry up until my own rape. So for me, like, was I surprised that Harvey Weinstein was accused of these kinds of things uh, involving young women? Like, no, you know, I mean, nobody in the industry was surprised, right? You know, because people know what happens in the industry and people knew that Harvey had a certain kind of personality and acted a certain way around young women. So I wasn't surprised. um, But then obviously the whole world is going crazy over these things. And then there's this whole deluge of other stories coming out and other perpetrators being named. So it was a quite fascinating time. I mean, you know, it probably was for yourself as well. I mean, for anybody (laughs) that has a personal link to these kinds of issues, it was a pretty fascinating time in the media. And yet I kept on hearing people say, you know, I don't understand if this had been going on for so long, like, how could he get away with it? Or one, I think my sister actually said, like, you know, if they were working and this happened to them, well, why didn't they just go to HR, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, my sister works in a very corporate place, right? So I was kind of yeah. like, oh, HR doesn't really exist in the film industry in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it's also not necessarily going to look out for a young, vulnerable woman who is quite junior in a company um, or yeah. in the film production, right? So part of me was like, okay, I actually want to even though at the time I was, I was like, oh, do I want to write another book about sexual assault? Yeah. Um, I was like, yeah, but this could be interesting because I can draw upon my experience in the film industry and also write about it in a way that brings all that to life, that kind of makes readers realize like what the system is set up like and how, how the odds are stacked against you as a young woman, mm-hmm. even entering the film industry, you know, in terms of even finding a job, right? Yeah. So for me, that's what I want Complicit to be about. Like, yes, of course, it, it addresses me too in the film industry and, and you, you come across characters sort of you know, maybe similar to Weinstein or similar to certain journalists, but it really is about you know, young one young woman's kind of own journey and mm-hmm. how she started her career in film when she was young and naive, being completely mesmerized by the world of movies and went into it thinking she might have that, be able to have that kind of career, um, but obviously finding that the odds were stacked against her as a woman, as, as, a, as an Asian American woman. And yeah. then when you introduce a very wealthy, possibly like egomaniacal male boss into the situation, then things become quite different, right? So I wanted to capture that, but then also tell it in uh, sort of a, a mystery kind of format where she's approached by a journalist 10 years later who wants to get a story out of her. So she's not sure how much she wants to trust the journalist or how much she can right. tell him. She herself has never really addressed personally what happened to her. So it's also about that, about kind of looking back on a trauma that maybe happened to you 10 years ago and, and kind of really forcing yourself to confront the truth and how you might have been complicit in other abuses that were happening at the mm-hmm. time because, you know, she was very ambitious in her career as well and she maybe look the other way around certain issues or in certain circumstances because she knew that you didn't want to upset the boss. Yeah. So I know everyone heals in their own way from sexual trauma. What were some of the the ways that you were able to find healing? So I guess, you know, it's a continual process. Yeah. You know, at the very outset, like I didn't think it was possible. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I distinctly remember like all the PTSD that I had at the very beginning and just the complete sense of shock and just being like literally shell shocked and thinking like, oh, this is my life. Like I went from leading a life that I thought I knew to suddenly like, 
I'm a rape victim and I have to, you know, the police are calling me all, <laughs> you know, all the time. Yeah. And yeah, I keep on going and giving them more evidence. And like, I have to take these ridiculous pills to make sure I don't have HIV. Right. You know, and it's like, right, how did right, my right. life like change so quickly? Right. Yeah. So yeah. And of course there, there was a lot of hurt and anger and just a lot of shock that I, I was suddenly so reduced to the person I'd been before. Right. I was, you know, I, I had PTSD, so I couldn't, couldn't go into social situations. Like I had used, I was used to traveling on my own and suddenly like I couldn't set foot outside of my apartment. So that sense of being so reduced from whom I was before, you know, that was a huge sense of loss, right? Yeah. And on top of all this, I was 29, so that's when you're supposed to be, like, supposedly leading, you know, the best <laughs> part of your life. I'm not really sure about that, but, um, yeah. you know, a lot of my friends were getting married, you know, their jobs were flourishing, and I couldn't work anymore because I had PTSD. So I, um, yeah, I just I fell into, like, a pretty serious depression, I was on prescription medication for about six months. Like, I'm not, I'm not necessarily a fan of prescription medication, but I was like, you know what? Like, you know, I need something to take the edge off of kind of the, yeah. the pain I'm feeling. Yeah. And then I stopped prescription medication when I went traveling again. So, hmm. you know, to link me up to the person I was before, like, you know, traveling's always been a really important part of my life yeah. and it's always brought me a lot of joy. So, and I still find this hard to believe when I talk about it now, but a year and a half after my assault, I went backpacking in Southeast Asia on my own for three months, right? Wow. Um, and I kind of like sort of forced myself to do it. Like I had yeah. done a, a mini trip already. So literally, well, okay. So the the whole process of me recovering was about being able to uh, be in a place where I could travel on my own again. So like even months after the assault, I was trying to travel and I was like kept on running up against, you know, panic attacks and realizing like, okay, I can't do this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, two days after he was sentenced, right. So that would have been about 15 months or maybe 14 months after the actual assault. Mm -hmm. so he, he was sentenced. So, you know, he'd been sentenced to, to eight years in jail. And I was like, I'm going to celebrate. And I'm like, I'm going to go to Croatia on my own. So <laughs> booked a cheap EasyJet flight to Croatia. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to be sensible. And I'm just going to like, you know, take all the precautions and everything. But yeah, nothing happened. And I, it was, Croatia is an amazing country to visit. And it was, <laughs> and it was beautiful. Right. So, yeah. so it, that kind of reminded me like, no, there is, great joy and wonder in the world and i can still travel again so like i'm gonna do more of that right so yeah. and again if i'd had a job to go back to i wouldn't have been able to so i'm like well i might as well take advantage of the fact that like i don't have a job and just travel <laughs> so i you know i mean that used up a lot of my savings but you know for me that was right. necessary i mean that proving to myself i could travel again was really important so yeah. i then you know some friends of mine were going to vietnam and i'm like hey i'm gonna meet you guys in vietnam so i did that <laughs> and i'm like oh no i could do southeast asia so then I realized, like, maybe I could do three months in Southeast Asia on my own. Yeah. So I did that. Like, I booked a three months, you know, flight that would give me three months there. Mm. And it was great, you know, and nothing weird or creepy happened. I met great friends. I'm still in touch with some of them on Facebook, you know, and yeah, I saw yeah. amazing places that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. So that did really help me heal. And I sort of realized, okay, I'm going to go off the prescription medication before I go on a trip because I kind of know that I'm going to get such a natural high from being abroad that like maybe I don't need prescription medication. So that helped a lot. Yeah. The other thing is it, it did take me a long time to find employment again because in film... Mm you know, there aren't just jobs you can apply for, right? You yeah. know, and at that there's a whole system where you have to know someone and like network and blah, blah, blah. And I just didn't have that in me after my yeah. assault. So I think another big source of depression for me was just like not being able to get back into a, a job and a career um, that mm. was meaningful to me. So, and that piece only really fell into place like 
two years after the assault. Mm. And I ended up getting a job to work for the Doha Tribeca Film Festival in the Middle East, which actually paid really well. It was like completely like a weird fluke situation. But I'm <laughs> like, okay, this pays really well. It's about film. I have to move countries, but like, that's cool because I like traveling. So I was suddenly like in this country, which is, you know, Qatar is a very bizarre country, but yeah, <laughs> it also gave me a completely clean slate in some ways. Cause like mm-hmm. I didn't have any reminders of the rape when I was there. Like it was a completely yeah. new set of characters that I was meeting. So, which was also a bit weird because I wanted to talk to anyone about it. Like I had no one to talk to, but it was this clean slate, which helped in a lot of ways. The money helped too. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And that's kind of what I did, but maybe, it, maybe it involved having to take myself away from a place that I associated with my rape, which was, you know, my flat in London and to put myself in a new environment to kind of remind myself that there were, you know, other horizons out there. There is always going to be other new worlds that you can discover. I mean, I think that was kind of a big source of my healing also to have a job and feel like I was able to do it well and, you know, expand a career, which ended quite tragically in different circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to know what advice you would give to someone who wants to start writing their own sexual assault through writing at a professional level, not necessarily at a personal level. Yeah, yeah. And that's a really big question because, you know, the professional versus personal, mm-hmm. you know, that's a big barrier in some ways to cross, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, so if you're ready professionally, if you feel like you're ready for that to be out there and printed for the public to see with your name on it, I mean, I guess you can also do it anonymously is the other thing. Yeah, just realize that it's not necessarily easy, right? <laughs> I I suffered a lot of knockbacks, like any mm-hmm. writer would be. Like, you'd get a lot of rejections, but then that's mm-hmm. even more devastating when it's about your own trauma, which you've just shared. So yeah. find an agent who believes in you is key because the agent is the person that's going to be out there knocking on doors. Um, and so they'll, they'll kind of get the rejections. You don't have to necessarily be reading the rejection letters, right. but yeah. finding a, an agent who believes in you is also, is really important, but also like a good agent, right? Because um, you can have a good agent. You can have an agent who believes in you, but doesn't have the right context. So then right. they're still going to get rejections, right? So finding an agent who believes in you if, and then eventually through that, you'll be able to build a team because if the agent gets you a book deal, then you'll have an editor who believes in you and, and ultimately then a publicist, right, who believes in you. So all having a team of people that kind of um, believe in you and in your story and the value of the story of your story is really important. But then also just remind yourself that there's a lot of other people out there who are going to be able to connect to your story once it's in book form or, or once you're speaking to audiences about that. Because, I mean, yeah. we all know what what the statistics are right (laughs) in terms of how many women and men suffer from sexual assault so you know it's pretty much impossible to speak to a room of more than 20 people or 10 people even right and not have somebody else (laughs) in the audience who can relate so there is definitely a value to your story being printed out there and there are always people that are going to connect with you and they may not come up to you afterwards in person they might send you an email or or something like that but that is yeah a good reminder of how meaningful the work is in terms of writing your story and getting it out there if you want to do that professionally. Yeah. What have you learned from from others who have shared their own stories of sexual assault with you over the years? You mean other writers or just other people that have come up to me? Yeah, other writers. Um, yeah, I, I've learned that we're all kind of, there's a kind of shared community of people who are writers but also survivors because... I suppose we've learned to to withstand, I guess, the battering <laughs> that comes, you know, as a, as a writer. I, somebody once said to me that as a writer, you have to be thin-skinned, right? Because you have to be <laughs> sensitive to the world and write about it. But then as an author, as somebody who's published professionally, you have to be thick-skinned because you 
deal with a lot of rejection, right? And Ooh, love that. Yeah, and there's yeah. going to be, people are always going to criticize your books, right? You know, yeah. as much as you don't want to, and as much as people may not want to criticize a book written by a rape survivor, like, it's going to be out there. So, yeah. so I think it, that kind of group of people who are professionally published, but then also victim survivors, yeah, we all kind of understand, I suppose, the pain. But then there's also this almost sort of like, joking understanding of like yeah of course you know there's going to be some media outlets that that just want to sensationalize the story right mm. so we kind of almost like know who were the good journalists or know who were the people that we mm. can trust kind of i instinctively will always kind of trust a journalist or a writer if i know they have a, an experience of sexual assault because i think right. you know, they know what the trauma is like right they're not going to try yeah. to sensationalize it even yeah. though editors or you know producers may want to do that so there's this kind of understanding of if you've been through that pain yourself you're not going to try to um sensationalize it yeah so i know you're you're working on are you working on a novel right now another novel yeah what what's your novel about I mean, it, it would come out next year. It's, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I literally just finished uh, editing a chapter just before I, I jumped on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, for me, like, this is like my third novel. So I'm like, again, yeah. do I want it to be about sexual assault, right? <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think the larger question is, you know, like, yes, unfortunately, this happened to me. Unfortunately, it happens to people. And yeah. I guess for me, it's good that I'm able to write about it and good that I've been able to establish a career as a published author um, right. off the back of this. But on the other hand, it's like, I don't want to be writing about rape and sexual assault the rest of my life, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's this weird bind where like, that's, that's your USP, right? You know, you're yeah. the person that writes about sexual assault and trauma. <laughs> but like, you know, that's not necessarily what you want to be defined by, right? Um, right. So, you know, so I have a two book deal with my publisher. So in some ways, I kind of, they're, they're obligated to publish my next book. So in some ways, I was like, you can look at it two ways. You could be like, oh my God, that's so much pressure sure they have to write another book so quickly yeah but they're like no but they're obligated to print it so i can maybe take some artistic uh risks in some ways right i might yeah. try to do something and not have to worry so much about does it fit into a genre because is that going to make it mm. more sellable like yeah okay fine obviously if something's sellable that's good but so for me i'm like okay what what do i want to write about that is gonna i guess keep my passion engaged through that very long process of writing and editing a book and then promoting it so yeah so again this goes back to travel right so door chapter was that very raw personal book about my my rape and about the issue complicit i wrote because it allowed me to kind of embrace movies again i mean i've mm -hmm. always loved movies and then i my career ended because i couldn't do with the job of a producer anymore once I had PTSD. So that was quite sad. And I always felt a sense yeah. of loss about that. So I'm like, okay, can I write a book that's about celebrating the movies while also kind of turning a critical eye to the industry? <laughs> so, so for the third book, I'm like, okay, this is going to be about travel. It's, and so mm -hmm. is it necessarily going to be about travel in the wake of trauma? I mean, trauma plays a role in the storyline. Like I, you know, I don't want to kind of, give anything away but it, yeah. it is yeah. it is really basically about traveling through america right as, as an asian american person right mm -hmm. so so essentially it's about three adult siblings strange adult siblings that have to go mm. on a road trip across america to see their ailing mother mm. in california so that is the premise of it but then along the yeah. way like they're strange there's a lot they haven't told each other right so it's kind of meant to address you know, traveling and moving through unknown places, which is something that I like doing, but then I've obviously encountered the dark side of that. Yeah. But then also look at, you know, how do we feel like we belong, you know, if you're, if you're used to living on the two coasts of America, right? Mm -hmm. Do we feel like we belong when we go to the interior, right? Yeah. Do we feel like 
do we even feel safe when we go to the interior if, if you're a different race from most of the other people yeah. there? So right. all of which kind of touches on my own experience, but I wanted to see that in the context of, you know, three adults who have kind of followed different paths in their lives in terms of how do they find their own sense of belonging and how that maybe makes them estranged from their own parents who were immigrants as well. So, yeah. so trauma does come in there, you know, gender and race obviously play a role, but it is also just about traveling and how we feel as people moving through a territory that's not, our, our home territory, right? And then what constitutes right. our home territory? And maybe I came up with the idea to force myself to give myself an excuse <laughs> um, to do a road trip. But to research for it, I did a road trip. Um, so I, I drove Route 66 from Chicago to, to LA with my family. So I've now, you know, in the wake, yeah, in the wake of the assault, I somehow managed to actually find a partner and um, have a kid, which I thought was never going to happen. For me, that yeah. was always like the final piece where I'm like, I'm never, you know, I'm just going to be single yeah. for the rest of my life, right? Because it's like dating post-sexual assault. <laughs> It's like not a fun territory. And yeah. then sort of really last minute, I met somebody and unexpectedly became pregnant and had my kid at the age of 42, right? So, yeah. or 41, I think. Yeah. But I kind of was like, I'd kind of given up on hope of that ever happening, right? And I was like, okay, that's yeah. going to be one more legacy of the rape that I'm just going to sort of miss that boat in terms of becoming a mother. <laughs> and then it yeah. happened. So I kind of was like, oh, this is, you know, life does throw things at you, which are actually quite nice <laughs> when you least expect it. Yeah. And then I was like, okay. Now that I've got a kid and this is post-COVID, I'm like, how do I actually travel again, right? How do I reclaim that love of traveling when I have, like, a young toddler? And so I realized a road trip was the way to do it. And I'm like, okay, let's do a road trip in the States and I'll (laughs) write a book about it. So, yeah. So that was kind of a way to write write that next book and also allow me to kind of pursue my own, own interests in doing it. Right, 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 right. Well, where can people find you? I'm on, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. So it's Winnie Emily on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I also have a website that needs updating, but there's the basic info there. So it's winnieemily.com. Obviously, you know, my TED Talk is up there online. Um, and yes. then my books are Dark Chapter and Complicit, and you could find them obviously on Amazon, but also through most of your booksellers can order it for you if they don't already have it on their shelves. So yeah, so the Complicit paperback is out in late June in the States. Um, and yeah, like, so... If you Google my name, you should be able to call up with stuff and, and find me. Awesome. <laughs> well, I'll link in the show notes to all your socials, books, and website. To find out more about our podcast, please follow us on Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram, or visit our website, www.recognizeourpower.com. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends. If you have an extra few seconds, please leave us a review to help the algorithm. I'd like to thank my guest today. Be sure to check out our show notes and website, www.recognizeourpower.com. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I'm your host, Kelly Wallace. This podcast is produced by Three Wire Creative.